It's good to see you. Um, thank you to David for leading us uh, so far this evening and to uh, the musicians and singers for uh, helping us to, to worship God. Um, I, I was in the wee prayer meeting before the service tonight, as I usually am on a Sunday, and just telling the guys that David would be leading and that I would be preaching and that they could pray for us. And I found myself saying, pray for us any time we're preaching Jeremiah, because it's uh, quite demanding to try and teach it. Um, I'm conscious as well that uh, when you're sitting in the pew with the Bible open and you're trying to make some sense of it, not having had the chance to to study it maybe the way we have, uh, you probably need some prayer too uh, to to try and get uh, something from God's Word. So why don't we just, uh, again, invite God to come and speak to us uh, through this part of his Word. Let's pray. Father God, we are inclined to come to you looking for things that we want. Uh, You're often on our minds only when we want your help, uh, when we want your guidance for a particular uh, problem that we need to solve. Lord, help us to be people who are hungry just to hear from you what's on your mind to hear you speak to us on subjects that we maybe aren't even thinking about. Lord, help us to realize that our preoccupations are simply not large enough to accommodate all that you would want to say to us. So, Lord, as we come this evening to this book of Jeremiah with some of its confusing uh, images, its confusing patterns of communication, Lord, we pray that you would shine through all of that, that your spirit would come and press home the words you want us to hear this evening. Amen. You have Jeremiah 11 open before you. Um, That's good. That'll help as we go on. Last weekend, Ulster remembered the signing by nearly half a million Ulster men and women of the Covenant in 1912. Uh, The signatories on that occasion promised to use all means which may be found necessary to defeat the present conspiracy to set up a home rule parliament in Belfast. I knew a little bit about this from history, but not very much. So I got a chance to watch the documentary that uh, William Crawley had uh, on the TV maybe a week before uh, the the Covenant uh, celebrations. Turns out that in the end, the average Ulsterman's commitment to, to the Covenant wasn't really tested because the Home Rule Bill was postponed by the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. Many of the Ulstermen who had pledged their loyalty to their country didn't get a chance to demonstrate it in the way they had anticipated. But many of them did demonstrate their commitment in the trenches of northern France, uh, where many gave their lives. A covenant, a promise or commitment, that's what we're going to be thinking about here this evening in Jeremiah chapter 11. 
I want to recap very quickly on the ground that we've covered so far in the, the opening chapters of Jeremiah. We've called this series Living in Exile. And in our first evening together, we recognized that Judah was going through turbulent times uh, at this stage. The opening three verses of chapter one of Jeremiah tell us of different kings under whom Jeremiah uh, served. Uh, We noticed how there were different empires who were pulling the, the tiny nation of Judah first in one direction, then in another, first the Assyrians, then the Egyptians, finally the Babylonians. It was a time of great turmoil. We sometimes imagine that living in 2012 were the first people who have come to terms with a a, a rate of change. I I doubt that that is true. Uh, Reading these opening uh, verses of Jeremiah, you can sense uh, the turmoil that the country was in in that time. And the, the book of Jeremiah ends with God's people in exile. And what we said that opening night was that the, the exile, the being taken from the place where you're right at the center of society and dragged away, isn't a bad image for how the church can feel. Those who follow Jesus might feel in Britain early in the 21st century. Once right at the center of British culture, uh, Christian values were British values. All of a sudden, in the space of a few short years, that has changed very dramatically. In our second study, we met God's prophet, Jeremiah. He protested there in the opening verses of chapter 1 that he was too young for this job that God had called him to, but God overruled. And he told this young priest from Anathoth, just north of Jerusalem, that he had been known by God before his birth, that he'd been chosen for God's work, and that he'd been given as God's messenger to the people. Last week, David guided us through, we started to to press the fast forward button, and we moved from chapter 2 through to chapter 7. And we see there that Jeremiah, as he begins to, to communicate with the people, the first thing he does is he confronts them with their sin. He tells them, pretty straight, that they are are sinning people in rebellion against God. He also tells them that they're trusting in the wrong things. There's a a point in chapter 7 where the people say to themselves, we're okay because we're in Jerusalem, we're standing here in the temple, uh, and they talk about the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and God says, don't believe it. Look to Shiloh. It used to be a holy place, and it's in ruins. Very soon, Jerusalem, this holy place, will be in ruins too. Let's quickly pick up a couple of things in chapters 8 to 11. Our focus is very much going to be in chapter 11, but I thought we'd do this just to to get us back into the the flow of the book uh, after a week off last Sunday night. Jeremiah 8 begins with Jeremiah telling the people that they're so far gone in their sinning that they've forgotten how to repent. They wouldn't know how to do it. Verse 5, he says, you refuse to return. And then he uses some very arresting images. Look at verse 7. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration 
but my people don't know the requirements of the Lord. It's a good time of the year to be reading that particular image. Have you been? Have you noticed the starlings gathering? They do it round about this time of the year, September time. If you're round a, a large public building or a warehouse, you might see them swarming in their thousands. They're getting together, ready to migrate, head off to Africa for, for better weather. They don't need to be told to do that. They know how to do that. It's, it's in them. They know how to come and to go. They know how to return to, to that place where they can get shelter from the winter. It's in their nature. These birds, Jeremiah says, are smarter and much more able than God's people, Judah. Judah doesn't know how to respond to what's going on around. They don't know the people how to return to God. Jeremiah picks up then a couple of related themes, beginning in verse 8, the folly of the people who think things are fine when they're far from fine. And then secondly, as he's done a number of times before, he lays the responsibility finally at the feet of the leaders. Look at verse 10. From the least to the greatest, they're greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Those are frightening words when you have a job like mine, uh, which is to teach God's word in a community. Tempting to say always that everything's all right. But sometimes it's patently not all right. Jeremiah, the leader of Jeremiah's days, were failing. In the early verses of chapter 9, Jeremiah shows us what God's purposes are going to be in this defeat and exile. We, we know there's a defeat and an exile coming. But in the early chapters of the book, it's still ahead of us. But here, Jeremiah gives us a sense of God's purpose. He says in chapter 9, verse 7, God says, I'll refine my people and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? It's an interesting insight into the mind of God, isn't it? What else can I do? God's portrayed here as a parent who's been working patiently with their wayward child, endlessly trying to persuade them to to follow his advice to, to live in the good way that he's calling them to. After their repeated refusal to do what he says, there comes a point when that strategy, that gentle persuasive strategy, no longer works. The kids have shown themselves incorrigible. It's going to need a short, sharp shock. A punishment. What else can I do? The Lord asks about his people, Israel. God's judgment isn't vindictive. It couldn't be. Never. Ever. Because that's not in God's nature. His punishment's corrective. When his people go off the rails, he's always acting to restore them and to bring them back. few verses later we find a question that's crucial to the understanding of the whole book of Jeremiah and it's a question that's 
crucial to the whole of the exile and the whole story of God's people. It's the why question. Look at 9 verse 12. What man's wise enough to understand this? Who's been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? It's interesting imagery again, particularly when you remember the origins of God's people. They were a nation in oppression, oppressed by the superpower of their day in Egypt. God in his mercy had rescued them from under Pharaoh's hand. He had given them a leader in Moses and enabled him to bring the people through the Sinai Desert to a land flowing with milk and honey. He had brought them through a desert and he had given them a land. Why is it all reversed? Why is the land of honey, milk and honey, turned now into a desert, a desert greater than the Sinai one, the one that can't and won't be crossed? Why are the people once more going to suffer under an oppressive foreign regime? Why is all the good of the Exodus going to be reversed as the people go into exile? Why would God do that? I don't know how to... I have a sense that this is closer to home for us than we care to admit. But I don't want to be prescriptive in how I apply this or the connections I make. But I think there's a question for us here. Why is the Western church in a time of exile or in a time of decline? Why is it that in British culture we're being pushed to the margins of our society. Is it because God is weak and he's failed? Or is it because God's allowed it in his purposes? Why do we find ourselves where we are in 2012? For his day, Jeremiah gives us God's answer In chapter 9, verse 13, God answers the why question. He said, it is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed it, or they have not obeyed me or followed my law. Everything that was happening to Judah in the time of Jeremiah, as they suffered under first Assyria, and Egypt, everything that was going to happen to them under Babylon is a direct result of their covenant-breaking adultery. And that's the theme of chapter 11, and that's where our focus is going to fall for the rest of our time this evening. Let's spend a few moments paying attention to what Jeremiah says to Judah about their breaking covenant and then we'll try to work out why that's a big deal. God sends Jeremiah in the early verses of chapter 11 on a tour uh, through the land with a message for the people. You know, modern day preachers go on, on preaching tours but I don't think they'd be selling out the waterfront or the odyssey with Jeremiah's message. I don't think there'd be too many preachers would take this message on the road. Look at what it says. 
This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who does not obey the terms of this covenant, the terms I commanded your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the smelting furnace. I said, obey me and do everything I command you, and you'll be my people and I'll be your God. Then I'll fulfill the oath I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. Jeremiah, and and we're learning this about him, somewhere God has worked in him so that he's willing to take this massively unpopular message on the road, to take it to the people. He says, I answered, Amen, Lord. He's willing to do the thing that not one other priest, prophet, or leader in Israel will do, and that is confront the people with their sinfulness. He's going to do it. So God tells Jeremiah, first of all, remind the people of the terms of this covenant. But then he wants Jeremiah to do a second thing, and that is to make it clear to the people that they have breached the terms that they've broken covenant. Look at verse 6. Proclaim all these words in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. They did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I'd commanded them to follow, but they did not keep. Chapter 11 Jeremiah says the whole problem here is about a failure of God's people to keep covenant. Which covenant? What's he talking about? We're not going to understand this chapter very well unless we have some idea what this covenant is. This chapter assumes a knowledge of God's working with his people Israel. So flick back with me to Exodus 19, page 76. Exodus 19 on page 76. This is a huge moment in the history of God's people. Just three months before, Moses had led a ragtag band of slaves out of hard labor in Egypt. After centuries in captivity, they were finally free, traveling through the Sinai Desert on their way home to the land of their forefathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, the land God had promised them. And God, in chapter 19, gives Moses a message for the people. He makes his covenant with them. Look at verse 4. Moses is to tell the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This and a number of other passages like it 
show us what God's covenant with his people was all about. All the laws which follow in in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and and the laws that follow after that, are the small print. This is the covenant. The laws tell us how to live and enjoy the covenant, but this is the covenant. And this is the covenant which God, through Jeremiah, is telling his people that they have broken. We've, we've found the covenant, but we're talking here this evening about Judah breaking covenant. What does it mean to break covenant? I don't mind telling you what I thought it meant for most of my life up until this point. I thought it meant breaking the rules that followed. And that image gave me a God who was somebody who got a bit cross if people didn't do the stuff that he had pinned to the wall, the list of rules, the school rules. He was like a principal who who got a bit annoyed if people didn't do the things that he had called them to do. That's what covenant breaking meant to me and, and what it felt like. But I'm no longer convinced uh, that that's the case. Look again at what God says to his people in verse 5. Exodus 19, verse 5. Out of all the nations, he says, you will be my treasured possession. God's chosen Israel. We'll never know why, but he has. And he loves her. He is to be her husband and she's to be his wife. This covenant is God marrying himself to these people. Covenant failure isn't about breaking the odd rule here and there. Covenant failure is about failing to delight in your husband and running after another. Look at verse 6. God says to Israel, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God set Israel apart to be a holy people, to be entirely different from all the nations of the world, to be like him, to show the world how beautiful he is. They were to be priests They were to bring God to the people and bring the people to be God. They were were to be his ambassadors in the world. Covenant failure is not about breaking the odd rule here and there. It's about a failure to show the world who God is and a failure to show the world how they could come to be with God. It's once we understand the covenant in those terms and covenant failure in those terms that we begin to see why God has to finally act the way he does. Covenant failure isn't a failure to keep a particular set of rules. It's a refusal to live out our calling. It's a refusal to be the bride of Jesus Christ to be as ambassadors in the world, whenever we break covenant in these ways, we're no longer living as the people of God. We're not, as they say in the modern world, fit for purpose. And something 
has to be done. One last thing about God's covenant. While God promises to bless his people when they walk in his ways, he warns them of curses if that'll befall them if they persistently refuse to keep covenant. Turn with me to, to Deuteronomy 28 on page 205. You might know that the book of Deuteronomy is really a, a, mostly a long sermon from Moses before he hands over the leadership of the people to Joshua. He takes an opportunity to reinforce uh, the covenant to them. And here in chapter 28, he talks about the blessings that people will know if they obey and curses for disobedience. He says in verse 15, If you do not obey the Lord your God... And do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today. All these curses will come upon you and overtake you. It's a long, sobering section, and I don't want to read it with you now. Notice, though, how some parts of it foretell the experience of Judah in the times of Jeremiah. Look at verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. Verse 36. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you and your fathers. You're going into exile. Look at verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. Look at verse 52. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. Moses foretold all that hundreds of years earlier. In the times of Jeremiah, it all comes to pass. Covenant-breaking people experiencing the judgment of God. I want to pick up one last movement in chapter 11 before we come towards a close. And it's a shocking one. Look at what the Lord says to Jeremiah in verse 14. Jeremiah 11, verse 14. God speaks to his prophet and he says, Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Because I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their distress. Did you know this about the living God? That there's a, a prayer he doesn't want to hear? We don't expect God to be saying, don't pray. Don't pray for these people. I won't listen to them if they pray. What on earth is going on here? Why would God say this? It's because of what we said earlier, that when God's people fail to keep covenant with him, 
they fail entirely to live out their calling and his purposes for them. They're not living out their identity as his bride. They're not fulfilling their purpose as his ambassadors. They refuse to live out their calling and they're simply not fit for purpose. And this failure is fundamental. Unless there's a change of heart. Unless there's what the Bible calls repentance, a U-turn, a turnaround, these people can't expect God's blessing in their lives. Do not pray for this people. Can you imagine God saying that today? God telling us not to pray for the church or some part of it? I've been thinking about this Jeremiah stuff for quite a while over the summer. And the conclusion I'm coming to is that I can. I can imagine God saying just that. Because I know that there are parts of the church of Jesus Christ that I don't feel comfortable praying for. At least not as things stand. I'm talking about Christian communities whose primary commitment is some sort of ethnic loyalty or some political ideology. For them, God is simply a veneer over all their other commitments. I'm talking about people who have given their primary allegiance to another community before Jesus Christ and his church, but they still claim to be the people of God. I believe that there are church communities that are failing so fundamentally to live up to their calling, to be the light of the world, that the only hope finally for them is God's judgment to fall, to purge them, and to force a U-turn in their whole identity. It's a corporate repentance that's needed, the like of which Jeremiah was calling for in his lifetime. Maybe you'll debate me on the door on the way out. Maybe I've got that wrong. It's been another heavy session with Jeremiah this evening. Where's the good news in all of this? The good news is that God's planning something much, much better for his people than covenant failure experienced by Israel at this point in their history. After the judgment to come, Jeremiah predicts a new covenant when God would give new privileges to his covenant-breaking but repenting people. Turn with me, one last reference, chapter 31 of Jeremiah. You've got to see this. Don't want you going home depressed.
chapter 31, page um, 793, the part I'm looking for, verse 31. Jeremiah looks beyond the exile, beyond all the, the judgment that lies ahead. And he says, a time is coming, God says, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob or Judah. It'll not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. A new covenant. A new way of being with God. And it's a covenant that was initiated finally by Jesus in his death and resurrection. Jesus, you see, is the one who perfectly kept covenant with God. And if you read the New Testament, the the miraculous mercy of God is on display there. We're told that God looks on those who trust in Jesus Christ and he sees the covenant faithfulness of Jesus as mine and as yours. We're no longer failing to keep covenant. Because of Jesus, we're seen as faithful. His faithfulness becomes our faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, We have seen this evening the reason for God's heavy judgment on his people, a failure to keep covenant. My sense is that we, left to our own devices, still fail, and that God still, as a father with his children, has to correct us. But in the end, each one of us stands before God with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the faithful one. And we stand there not on our own merits, but in his. Take comfort. Know that if we repent and if we seek him, he is our righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we can see as we read uh, these prophecies of Jeremiah why it was that he spent most of his life uh, being pursued and persecuted uh, and suffering. His message was a hard message. Father God, we pray this evening that you would help us not to sidestep this hard message. We pray that you'd help us to to test our hearts. To use this message 
through an Old Testament prophet to test our community and its values. Lord, show us all the ways in which we are failing to live out the identity that you've given us, our calling to be a light to the world. Lord, and where we're failing, help us immediately to turn and repent. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the faithful covenant keeper. Thank you that his righteousness has become ours as we trust in him. We entrust ourselves into your care, knowing that Jesus has made us right with you. But Lord, help us to honor you too. Help us not to be satisfied with being forgiven. Help us to long to to be your people in this world, a holy nation, a priesthood, a people belonging to God. We pray all this for ourselves and for this church that bears Jesus' name. Amen.